What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Now, Ross Kaminsky. On KOA. 8.50 a.m., 94.1 FM, and on iHeartRadio. All right, good morning. I'm Ross. It's Thursday. Fantastic to be here with you. I've got producer Shannon with me this morning in his bright orange shirt. He showed me a picture earlier of the million-person Broncos celebration after they won the Super Bowl some years ago. And uh, seven years ago, and he and I are are both hoping, although I think I'm a bigger NFL fan than Shannon is, but he and I are, are both hoping that maybe Denver will see that again. I would like to point out that uh, Marty and Gina left me a small cup of wine. I do mean small. Uh, this is like if you took a small espresso cup and cut it in half, it would be about like this. And so I will be drinking during today's show and the entire quantity of wine that I will be drinking over some period of time uh, probably amounts to a solid half an ounce of wine. So uh, if I'm going absolutely crazy, you'll know that I just can't hold my liquor. Uh, Before we get to all the serious stuff today, I would just like to take a moment and tell, tell you something that is not particularly serious or important at all, but interesting to me. And since I'm the one behind the mic, I get to tell a story. So, you know, I'm super into stereo stuff. And I've, I've realized that I spend so much time in, in my home office preparing these shows where I have the opportunity to talk with you every morning that, you know, only a percentage of my radio work at home involves being behind a microphone. Right. Sometimes I have to record things. If you ever hear my Ross reports on any of our other stations, I record those at home. Sometimes I record commercials at home. The promos where you hear something saying "coming up on tomorrow's show," you know, I then re- that runs when I'm not on the air, so I record that at home. But most of the time, I'm I'm reading articles and reading books and doing all kinds of other things to prepare a show. And so I'm in my home office a lot in a way where I don't need to talk and. I, I've realized I listen to a ton of music there more than I listen to on the big stereo upstairs. And so I've been getting into, you know, upgrading my listening stuff downstairs. I got some very nice headphones and I've been kind of noodling around thinking about a really good headphone amplifier, which is what it sounds like. It's, it's an amp that takes in a signal from something, could be from a from a computer or from a, a digital to analog converter. So a signal comes out of a computer into this thing called a DAC and out of the DAC into the amplifier. And then the amp, I mean, we're all we're all used to, you know, amps at home where you turn up the volume and it comes out loud out of your speakers. This is just the same, except it's only for headphones. It doesn't power speakers. You plug the headphones in and that's all it does. So I was emailing back and forth with this, dude named Chris Johnson who who runs a company called Parts Connection with an X, C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N, Parts Connection in Canada. 
And I buy a lot of parts from them when I'm messing around with this stuff. And he is kind of a legend in the world of stereo himself. I won't get into all of that, but he's been in the industry for a long time. And so I was emailing with him and said, I'm thinking about a headphone amp. I'm, and and he said to me, have you heard of this company Sparkos Labs? S-P-A-R-K-O-S, like Spark O-S, Sparkos Labs. He said, they make a, a pretty interesting product. I said, no, I never heard of them. And I went on their website. And, and mostly what they make is components, fancy components for other people to make audio equipment out of. But they also make a fancy headphone amp. And I'm looking at it. And I'm looking at the website. And I'm looking at the headphone amp. And that thing looks pretty cool. And it's like, you know, it's 2500 bucks, And I'm not spending that kind of money right now on a headphone amp. But anyway... I realize these guys are local. These guys are local. They're from like uh, Westminster or something. I shouldn't say or something. I mean, because I, I, I know where it is. But they're, they're from the, the Westminster area, roughly. And so I got in touch with uh, the guy's name is Andrew, but he goes by Sparko in the Sparko's lab. And I went over there yesterday. And... He and his wife work together, but I got to see the lab and the shop where they build all this stuff. And it's just so fascinating to see from the ground up how somebody makes electronic components and fancy stereo equipment. And his wife actually helps him build some of the stuff. And she does a lot of the other, you know, the logistics and the shipping and all this. And dude, I ended up hanging out with Sparko and his wife for five hours, including <laughs> including going out to an early dinner together at a nearby restaurant. And we talked about life, the universe, and everything, and stereo equipment, and radio, and you just never know who you're going to meet. But that was just a wonderful day for me to just wildly nerd out with this guy, listening to different headphones on different amplifiers that he built. Gosh, I'm jealous. In fact, all right, let me ask you a question. I want you to text me your answer to 56690. Ross, you converted. Sounds like you're taking communion. It kind of feels that way to me. You give me a cracker and it'll be like we have some communion going on here with your Jewish talk show host and my little bit of wine this morning. So anyway, uh, let me ask you this question because I've been I've been thinking about this and Hanging and, and by the way, go go look at sparkoslabs.com, S-P-A-R-K-O-S-L-A-B-S.com. Most of these things are not going to be of interest to you, frankly, you know, unless you're a, but, but still, at least, you know, you'll get to take a look at the kind of stuff that I dig. And so when you hear me talking about stereo equipment or a headphone amplifier, at least you can picture it in your head. Oh, you've got a cracker. Oh, my gosh. Someone's trying to convert me. Was that you who sent the text, Shannon? Are you, have you converted? No, not you. Shannon does send texts sometimes. I'll pass on the cracker, but thank you. Okay, so this is what was in my mind sort of during and after hanging out with Sparko and watching all this stuff that he can do. And that is, you know, I'm not jealous of much in this world. You know, I have most of what I want, and I'm pretty happy with my life. And, you know, everybody could be richer or taller or whatever. 
But I, I'm, I'm happy with my life, and I love the fact that I get to talk to you every day. One day, not soon, but one day I'll retire from radio, and one day I'll retire from, you know, kind of normal, everyday working job, probably. It's, you know, when the kids are out of college and all that. So it's still years away. I'm not talking about anything even vaguely imminent. Right? It's not like I'm going to retire next week and you won't hear me anymore. Nothing like that. But I had this thought in my head. What would I, what would I like to do when I retire? What would I really love to take on as a something that might be so, more than a hobby and less than a job? You know, like something you do on occasion that you can make money from. Doesn't have to be a lot of money. And I've, I've thought on and off for a while, but I sure thought it a lot yesterday when visiting with these guys that I would love to be able to design my own uh, electrical or electronic circuits and specifically audio circuits and to be able to design my own, my own headphone amplifier. Now, I could never, I will never, ever, ever be in a position to design something like Sparco's headphone amplifier. I mean, this dude designed the chips and the amplifier and programmed the microcontroller. I mean, this guy is just like an unbelievable genius who didn't, he didn't finish college. He's one of these people. He like did the first couple of years of college and like, you're not teaching me anything I don't already know or can't figure out myself. And he left after two years and now he's you know, like a mini Steve Jobs or some, I mean, not that level of success, but you know, you get my point. It's just, I don't have that brain. I'm not that smart. But some of the stuff like this uh, smaller tube headphone amplifier I have, that's not that complicated a circuit. Now, I think it takes years and years to perfect it and really know, put this part here and that part there and choose this component rather than that component, even though they seem like they're almost the same. And I don't know what kind of level I could get to, but boy, would I get a lot of satisfaction from, de from designing my own, let's just stick with headphone amplifier and being able to plug a cable into it and then plug the headphones in somewhere else and, and hear music. That would be one of the greatest satisfactions of my life. I also think building guns could be fun, but that's a when you start selling a gun, now you're in a whole insane world of regulation and liability. And so I, I, I think that even though I like tinkering around with firearms, most likely I will do some of that kind of tinkering, but not in a way designed to make any money, just with my own stuff, because I would not want to get on the wrong side of some you know, federal felony charge when I didn't even know I was doing something wrong. So tinkering with guns, probably just at home, just for me. But my question for you that I should get to here is, and, and, and a couple of you have anticipated the question already. What's a skill set that you wish you had? What's a skill set that would allow you to, let's say, do something in retirement that you would really, really enjoy doing. So what is the thing that would be to you what learning how to design and build my own headphone amplifier means to me? That's what I want to know from you at 56690.
56690. That's our KOA Centura Health text line. Let me think of another way to ask. You can answer those questions. I'm going to try to reword, but essentially ask the same question. I, I mentioned that when I was hanging out with Sparco, that I was slightly jealous, or more than slightly, I admit it, of his skill set. I wish I could do or know a fraction. I, I probably literally know 1% of what he knows. And I've been looking at this stuff for a long time, but I, I think that's probably about right, 1%. If I had to take the over or under, I'll take the under, half a percent, you know, one two hundredth of what he knows, something like that. And I, I really wish I knew more. So what is something that you feel that way about? Tell me at 56690, and I will share some of your some of your answers on the air. I, I wasn't even really intending on, on talking about that, but I, I, sometimes I tell these personal stories and, well, frankly, people really seem to like them and I get these messages and I'm like, you should do more of that. And Plus, it's fun for me. This is, this is part of the reason, by the way, a little, not exactly inside radio, but inside Ross's brain. So when, lots of times when I go out, I, I'll either intentionally or accidentally meet a listener or a handful of listeners if we go out for lunch or something like that. We should do that soon, by the way. And folks talk to me as if they really know me. And then I think about it for a little while and I realize they really do. I just, I talk so much and this is not unique to me. You know, I think lots of talk show hosts are like this, but so I'm, I'm not saying this makes me different, but when I'm, when I meet a listener and they and they talk to me and ask me questions that are really the kinds of things that just a, a friend would think to ask, I realize, you know, I, I, I do feel like my listeners are friends and I do feel like listeners really know me quite well, which is, it's, a, it's an odd thing though, if you think about it. I, imagine meeting someone for the very first time and then having them repeat back to you a whole bunch of things about yourself you know, and talk to you as if they understand you pretty well and then realize that they do. I, I like it, actually. To me, that's a big upside, a big upside of my job. I'm, I'm not, I am not surprised to see a bunch of people talking about woodworking. I'm not surprised by that one at all. This uh, listener says, I wish I had better woodworking skills. I can design a circuit in my sleep, but I can't build a coffee table. That's what I'd like to learn to do. See, this is another interesting thing. There are lots of people, maybe almost everybody, right? Especially among an audience like this, right? So my audience on average would be pretty well-educated. Not, not everybody, but my on average, pretty well-educated and, and maybe doing some fairly high-power things and have strong skill sets. And yet, no matter what your strong skill set is, for almost every single person, there's going to be something else that you wish you could do. I think I have a couple of strong skill sets. I'm not bad at the radio thing. And I used to be really good at trading options, and I probably still would be if I got back to it. And yet, there's this other thing that I wish I could do. Ross, I wish I could be able to use tools better so I could use them for home repairs. In essence, a handyman, it's not as easy as it looks in YouTube. All right, so let me address that one. It's not as easy as it looks in YouTube, but it's not that much harder either. All, 
because uh, I do a ton of this stuff myself. I'm very, very handy. And I do an immense amount of home repairs myself, including electrical. A lot of people are afraid of electrical. I love working on electrical and doesn't scare me at all. And I will tell you that just like almost everything else in life, all it takes is practice. So watch the YouTube thing. I, I actually had this. I was making these headphone cables the other, this headphone cable the other day, and I had to braid four wires into a fancy looking braid. And I've never done it before. And there are a few YouTube videos out there of people showing how to braid. And it took me a long time to just, how do you do that? It took me probably 45 minutes to do the first three inches of the wire. Just really want to get it right. And, and the guy's moving four different wires and it's almost like trying to keep your eyes on the hands of a magician while he's doing a magic trick and, or a three card money and you're trying to follow it all. And it's hard even when he's trying to go slow to show you how to do it because all the wires look the same and he's moving them around. But I got it and I practiced and I did it and, I, and then I got it done. And it's everything. Everything is about practice. Absolutely everything. Ross, I wish I could operate one of those big cranes. Fear of heights sucks. Huh. That's a good one. All right, one more, but then I'm going to come back and share more later. But one more right now. Ross, I wish my husband was a carpenter. I really admire woodworking skills. Hmm. All I can say to that is, I would just like to tell the husband, don't ever leave your wife alone with a carpenter, this particular wife, because now we know what turns her on. Uh, okay. All right, let me get serious for a minute. <clears throat> right after we got the news of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and we had reports that over 2,000 people were dead, I said that very morning, on the air, we need to all be prepared for that number to go up massively because this is in an area, uh, you know, southeastern Turkey near Syria, a fairly big city, and then you've got the refugee camps in Syria as well. And these are not places where things are constructed with really high levels of tolerance for, well, an earthquake. And you have to figure, that was a 7.8 quake with a 7.5 aftershock, and then something on the order of 100 smaller aftershocks after that. And it, it seemed to me that a hell of a lot of stuff was going to fall down on a hell of a lot of people. And I just kind of tried to warn not just you, but sort of mentally prepare myself. You know, that 2,000 number... There's no way it's going to be anywhere near just, just, it's a big number, 2,000 by the time this is done. A headline came out on Fox News less than two hours ago, death toll tops 19,300, passing the 2011 Japan tsunami. So at this point, we're, we're talking about Six times more people than the 9-11 attack. We're talking about one of the most devastating things outside of a war 
that humans have have been through, uh, at least in in recent history, and it's not done. 19,300. I want to take a few seconds and just read something to you that really struck me from the dispatch, thedispatch.com. When casualty counts get so high, the human brain can default to processing the loss of life as a statistic rather than a collection of individual tragedies. But the earthquake has already killed more than five times the number of people who died on 9-11, almost nine times the number of people who died during Hurricane Katrina. Each person buried in the rubble had a story. They had hopes and dreams. They had people who loved them. So I just wanted to share that with you. All right, in the next segment of the show, oh, okay, I'm going to get to this thing that I sort of teased with Marty and Gina. For the first time ever, or for the first time in a very long time, I think Google has something really to be worried about. Before we do that, I want to make sure to mention Kurt and Cameron Cambier and Centennial Capital Partners. These folks are... It's not just that they're great at what they do. It's that when you're working with Kurt and Cam, it's not just that they're helping you plan your finances and retirement. They truly get to know you. They'll, they'll, they will become your friends and they help plan your finances to the very, very best of their ability. Not just because it's their job, but because they truly do care about their clients as individual human beings. That's part of the reason I love them so much. If you don't have a good financial planner in your life, I want you to get started today at KurtCambier.com. That's K-U-R-T-C-A-M-B-I-E-R.com. Kurt offers securities through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., member FINRA SIPC, and advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Centennial Capital Partners are not affiliated. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. So many fantastic listener texts, and I'm going to share them later, but I'm just going to ask you if you're just tuning in now to send your own contribution to the conversation. Mike, the the simplest version of the question, I think, is what is a skill set? that you don't have that you would really like to have. And the example I gave for me was I would be able, I I would love to be able to design and build my own audio equipment, right? Stereo equipment, that kind of stuff. So what is a skill set that you don't have that you would like to have? Text me at 56690 and I'm going to share some of your answers a little bit later in the show. I will just share one thing uh, from the listener text line. It, I'm always just blown away by the stuff that my listeners know how to do. 
And this is one of the great joys of being a talk show host is the stuff you learn from listeners. And so I I mentioned that there was a a listener who sent a text saying, Ross, I wish I could operate one of those big cranes. And then another listener texted in like a minute later, I can teach him how to operate a tower crane. (laughs) So isn't that great? I think I'm going to talk more about, you know what? This is actually sort of a coincidental thing. It's already on my list of things to talk about for right now. And it's going to tie into what I mentioned about why if I were Google, I would be a little bit afraid right now for the first time, for the first time in a long time. So let's just talk about the job thing for a minute. And I promise you there's a thread through all this. I promise. So this is a piece from an Australian website called Study Work Grow. I don't think it's a big website, but whatever. The headline is 20 jobs that don't exist anymore. Here's an example of 20 jobs that don't exist anymore. Carriage makers, like the kind of thing a horse would pull that, you know, there's probably still a couple of them. You see the Queen of England or now the King of England being pulled around in a, in a, in a carriage, right? But that kind of carriage. How about this one? Slubber doffers. Shannon, you ever hear that term? Me neither. Slubber doffers. They were usually children and they worked in textile mills and removed the empty bobbins from the looms all day. Okay. Pin setters. We probably know what pin setters are, but uh, for, for those young people who have been to bowling alleys and seen the machines that put the bowling pins down and then lift them up and put them down and all that, well, it used to be the job of kids to run out there and reset the bowling pins before we had machines that did that thing. Knocker-uppers. Now, that sounds like somebody who got somebody else pregnant, but I don't think that's what it means. AKA human alarm clocks were around from 400 B.C., until after the Industrial Revolution, their job was to head out each morning and knock on the doors of their paying customers, doors or windows of their paying customers, using a baton or a long stick, like if you had to get up to a higher level, to get the occupants up in time for work each day. A knocker-upper. Lamp lighters. Before there was electricity, you had to go out and light the gas street lamps. Switchboard operators, right? Um, we should play, uh, what is that? Switchboard Susan. Is that Nick Lowe or Dave Edmonds? Switchboards. I won't sing it. I'm a bad singer. So anyway, switchboard operators. So, and and actually they replaced telegraph operators. Then you had switchboard operators and now you don't have any of that connecting phone numbers. Resurrectionists had the gruesome job of illegally digging up recently buried bodies for anatomists to use for medical research. Wow. Projectionists. So people who had to change the film reels for movies in theaters, signal men on the railways before that was all automated, camera film developers, there's probably still a few of those. It's a much smaller industry than it used to be. There's probably still some of them. Lift operators, lift operators. So I've actually been in some of those long time ago, but elevators that actually had, you know, a guy in a little uniform and a hat who would push the buttons or use this control where they had these elevators that would go up or down and you, you kind of moved this crank from one side to the other rather than pushing a button. That was very cool. Human computers. This was a name given to people who performed complex calculations before computers and calculators took over the roles. Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn are three human computers whose secret work enabled NASA space expeditions between 1940 and 1960. They made a movie about those ladies. Clock keepers. 
So they made sure that, that clocks were accurate on their time. Lectors read aloud to factory workers, keeping them entertained during their long and boring shifts. Aircraft listeners, before radar, listener, uh, before radar was invented, these listeners manned what were called acoustic mirrors, which are something like the the parabolic microphone that I get to hold sometimes on the sideline of Broncos games, and those detect sound and approach of, uh, of enemy aircraft. Milkmen, there's still a few milkmen around. Dunny men, D-U-N-N-Y, would collect night soil from the old-fashioned outhouse dunnies, which have now been thankfully replaced by modern sewage and septic systems. Scribes, right, so you'd write down stuff, but now we have computers and copying machines and all this. Video store employees, we remember those. So there's some jobs that don't exist anymore. I will mention that I do a job, I did a job. I did a job that, that still exists, but just barely. And that is being a floor-based financial markets trader. Almost everything these days is on a screen. Yep, Shannon's doing the hand signals. Almost everything these days is on a screen. And I'm, I would guess that probably something on the order of, like if you were to, if you were to count up all the floor-based traders who are doing that now, compared to how many there were when I was doing it, there's, there's probably one or 2% as many now, like 98 or 99% are gone. And it will be all gone, probably. So there's a piece that, let's see, how much time do I have? I got three minutes for this segment. So over at Insider, they have a piece called Chat GPT Maybe Coming for Our Jobs. And they talk about 10 jobs that AI is most likely to come after. And I'm not going to go into this in great detail because I don't have time. But, you know, some are kind of obvious, like computer programmers. You can easily imagine a computer, an artificial intelligence computer, doing a good job writing a computer program and probably not making nearly as many mistakes. There are other things. They talk about media. I'm actually not worried about AI replacing my job. And I'm not being sarcastic about this. One of the, so far at least, one of the key weaknesses of AI is they are not very good at processing very recent information. And it's not going to be easy for an AI to come on the air and do a news broadcast or analyze a news, analyze current news and stuff like that. Okay, so I, I'm going to stop on that. Then Scott Linscombe has a piece over at the dispatch. AI is coming for our jobs, and that's okay. And he talks about, this is a very, very interesting piece. This is all up on my blog at rosskaminski.com, so you can read these in more detail. But he talks about how, yes, AI will kill some jobs, but we shouldn't live in this world where we think that somebody can't get another job. And we live over the course of, we've demonstrated over the course of human history that lots and lots and lots of people lose their jobs all the time. And yet, not only do those people get different jobs, but the total number of jobs that exist on earth just keeps going up over time. It is not a fixed amount of labor that is in demand. So we shouldn't worry about this as if it's the end of the world, which doesn't mean that it won't hurt somebody. Now, tying this into what I was saying about, about Google and what I'd be a little concerned about or more than a little concerned about. So we heard some weeks ago that Microsoft invested $10 billion in the company that has this chat GPT AI technology. And they are moving fast. So Microsoft has a search engine called Bing, B-I-N-G. It's okay. It's not great. It's typically not quite as good as Google. 
and not nearly as used as Google, Microsoft has announced that they are going to build the chat, not exactly chat GPT, but the same technology tuned for search rather than for conversation and writing essays. They're going to build that into their search engine, Bing, and is going to be, I think it's already being rolled out to people who ask to see early versions of it. And it's probably going to be rolled out in a significant degree within just a matter of weeks, not months. And if I were Google, I would be very concerned about this. Google is already on a parallel path to do the same thing. But what's interesting about this is you remember back in the day, there were many people who just hated Microsoft simply because Microsoft was big and dominant. Google is in that position more than Microsoft is right now. And I think there are a lot of people out there who would like to not use Google just because they don't like the idea of using a not quite monopolist, but this massively dominant thing. And they like the idea of it being spread out a little bit more. And in a way, Microsoft is, is the underdog in this fight. The little guy in this fight, as strange as that seems, and Microsoft adding AI into their search before anybody else does is a big deal. And if I were Google, I'd be a little bit worried. It's keyword for cash. Your shot to win $1,000. Enter now with this nationwide keyword on our website. Check. That's check at KOAColorado.com. You know, I mentioned a little earlier in the context of how I wish I had some particular skill that someone else might have. You know, that you can always wish for things about yourself. You could wish to be taller. You could wish to be younger. You know, things you probably can't change. One thing that a, a lot of folks wish for, you wish you had better hair, right? Especially guys, right? Because when, when you start getting the bald spot or the receding hairline or the thinning hair, it makes you look a little older and you don't feel so good about it. And it's bad if you want to be out there on the dating scene, or even if you're married and you just look a little older to your wife, you don't feel so good about yourself. But this is one of the things you can do something about. You can go to advanced hair restoration and learn about their treatment, exact same treatment I got. You go to advanced hair restoration and they'll tell you how they do this thing, a simple one-day treatment. Your very own natural hair starts growing where you had lost hair basically immediately. And I think you're going to be overjoyed with the results like I am. $250 off and 250 free hair grafts if you go ahead with the procedure. If you tell me you heard about them from me, 720-459-HAIR or advancedhair.com. A listener noted, Ross looks like Google is aware of the existential threat po uh, to their search dominance posed by AI and sent a link about this. And absolutely, Google is working on this too. What I'm, what I'm, and Google is definitely going to implement AI in their search results. But I, I think part of the thing for Google in recent years is that people have come to believe, and it's probably true, separate from anything else you may think about Google, that their search results are the best and that there's, you, you are more likely to get a result that's useful for you from a Google search than from other search engines. And so I, again, I could be just projecting here. I might be wrong, but my, my sense is that a lot of folks use Google 
with a little bit of reticence. You know, like, I wish I had another choice. I don't like using the almost monopolist. I, I would like to spread this out a little bit. I don't entirely trust Google not to be selling information about things like what I'm searching for, that kind of thing. And, and so my, I, I think that by adding ChatGPT, which is at this point by far the most famous AI, by far, by adding that into Microsoft stuff. And by the way, ChatGPT is going to be, I, I've got this other story here. Microsoft Word gets ChatGPT integration with new third-party add-in called Ghostwriter. And this can get into a whole bunch of other tangents, which I, I will avoid that road right now. But Microsoft has put, I think it was $10 billion into this company that ChatGPT is not the company. ChatGPT is a product of the company that's above it. I think it's OpenAI or something like that. I, I think that's the company name. And so they're going to use it wherever they can. And, and I think this really does pose a huge threat to Google. And, and my point is, even if Google does add their own AI, Microsoft will have been the first mover adding AI to search. They'll have the most famous AI in their search. And if adding AI makes Microsoft search, their search engine called Bing, if it makes it as good as Google's in terms of the quality of the results, then Google's going to have a real issue. And then actually, I forgot there was one other aspect of this that I wanted to mention to you. And I think this is super interesting and important. In, in a way, this isn't all terrible news for Google. And here's, here's the way in which it could be good news. Look, on... In the aggregate, this is bad news for Google. But if I'm, if I'm Google looking on the bright side, think about this. Ken Buck has a book out attacking big tech. We just had Phil Weiser on the show recently talking about how Colorado and several other states are supporting the U.S. Department of Justice in another lawsuit against Google. There's, there's a lawsuit against Google about search. There's a lawsuit against Google about advertising and Part of the lawsuit against Google about their advertising ties into the fact that they are dominant in search. And part of Google's defense already in public has been this is a much more competitive marketplace than people seem to think. And Google said we actually lost a little bit of market share recently. Now, it's still huge, right? Whatever the number is, maybe they went from 94 to 93 or some big number like that. But still... If there is an upside in this for Google, it's that they can show a judge like, hey, there's real competition here. And, and when Microsoft rolls out ChatGPT into their search, probably well before Google rolls out theirs, although Google probably won't be too far behind, Microsoft could probably take a measurable maybe not enormous, but measurable percentage of Google search business like in a week or a month. And then this is, this will go to court and Google will say, look, Your Honor, this is a perfect example of the fact that we really do live in a competitive world and we are not a monopolist. And Google just took, you know, 5% or 10% or whatever the number is, just uh, Microsoft just took from us just, just now. 
it proves our point. So if I were Google looking on the bright side, I guess, I guess that's what I'd say. Coming up next, get your grubby hands off of my art. Now, Ross Kaminsky. On KOA. 8.50 a.m., 94.1 FM, and on iHeartRadio. All right, let's do this. I'm Ross. Thanks for being here. Uh, that's Dragon with a t-shirt about beards. Beards turn laziness into awesomeness. You know what's really funny about you're wearing that shirt today is I trimmed off almost all of my beard this morning. I, I use an electric, you know, shaver, and usually with a little thing on the end that could leave something that looks like 5 o'clock shadow. But I, I have to go record. All right, so I'm, I'm telling Dragon stuff that, that if I had half a brain in my head, I would not be saying while well, the mic was on and everybody else could hear me. But since I've been drinking early this morning, since the Colorado Morning News people left me a glass of wine, a cup of wine. Dragon, can you see that? It's a tiny little thing. It looks cute. It is really, really cute. And I think over the course of the morning so far, I have had the better part of half an ounce of wine. Yeah. So, lush, you. I know. I know. Uh, well, just so I didn't get too out of control, I've been interspersing it with some of my Keeman black tea. And it, and it is at arm's length, so you do have to really try to get to it. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been trying to take it slow so I didn't be wasted on on the show. So I started with probably close to three quarters of an ounce of wine, and I still got some left. So I, I'm I'm not going crazy. Why was I talking about that? Oh, your beard. Yeah, yeah, my beard. So I was told that I need to make a video that we're going to show to potentially folks who would like to advertise on my show. And, and just tell a little about myself and a little about the show and a little about whatever. And, and I just thought, I thought I look a little better without as much of a beard as I, as I had, uh, you know, your beard looks Viking and my beard looks like your t-shirt in the sense, my beard looks like the product of laziness, which it is. You're doing your beard on purpose and you're wearing a t-shirt that's claiming it's from laziness, but it's not really. I mean, that, you're doing what you want to do. A little bit of laziness and procrastination, yeah. 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 I'm just lazy. And so this morning, for the first time in probably two weeks, I trimmed it off. And it's funny that you're wearing a beard shirt today. My wife had one of the greatest lines when about beards and guys without beards. Yeah. When uh, she's a big fan of Jason Momoa. He he played uh, Aquaman. Aquaman. And, yeah. So she's she's all over him, and mm -hmm. he had at one point in time completely shaved off all of his facial hair, mm -hmm. and and she had stated when she had seen that picture, oh my god, he looks like a fetus. <laughs> so Ross, without your bigger, bushier facial hair, you you tend you, you look a little a little like a fetus. Not not quite so much, but, but you know just just a little. Well, this yeah. is why. This is why. I almost never use an actual razor that goes all the way down to the skin because I don't want to look like a fetus. Uh, and I think I look better with a little bit or more than a little bit of facial hair. But I, so that's why I use the electric thing with the tiny little black plastic yeah, thing that goes over the blades, but like something. the shortest one they yeah. make. 
And, and so that's why a lot of times people will think that I'm like the, the manliest man in the world who has five o'clock shadow three minutes after shaving. But it's because I never, I never, oh, bring in more wine. It's because I never shave all the way down. What I As oh, look comes Cole, look, to top Cole off is your coming glass. in with a napkin on his sleeve like a full-on sommelier. Thank you. That's that's excellent. That is the funniest thing ever. Do you have any more of Julie's chocolate? Yes. That's what I really need. Is the chocolate therapist dark chocolate? Oh, let me tell you one other thing. God, this is random. Since we're wasting time, let's keep going. Yeah, let's keep going. So at the moment. Our listener trip to to France is is sold out. Uh, sometimes people drop out, though. So if you would like to be on the waiting list to go to France, just go to rosskaminski.com and click on um, France summer trip. It's it's end of July through early August. The reason I mention that is I've been to Paris, I don't know how many times, a bunch of times. Oh, this is the solid chocolate. I was asking about the liquid chocolate, but these are good, oh. too. I'll take one of these. Thank you. I, I love the chocolate therapist in Littleton. Everybody should go twice today, twice today. Um, okay, I'm going to have that chocolate in a little bit because chocolate and wine is a big thing for Julie. So in Paris, there is a cafe called Angelina's. And Angelina's makes my favorite hot chocolate in the entire world. I believe they call it African chocolate, I think. It's been a while since I've had it. And it comes in a very little cup, like not much bigger than this cup that I'm showing Dragon right now as if people listening to me on the radio can see it. Uh, but this cup is, uh, call it an it's inch, a, an inch and a quarter, glass. inch and a yeah. half. Yeah, not even a shot glass. But I, I, Angelina's probably shot glass size for that particular thing. And you are drinking pure heaven. And I... I hope, I got to talk with Charlie, who kind of runs the trip. I hope that we are going to find time on our Paris trip to go to Angelina's and taste my favorite hot chocolate in the world. So, like I said, the trip sold out right now, but usually there's somebody who, you know, an issue comes up and they have to drop out. So if you want to be on the list, just go to rosskaminski.com and, and get in touch with Cruise and Tour, and they'll put you on the wait list. The other thing I want to mention, speaking of going to rosskaminski.com, I, I mentioned this once before, but I was reminded of it by a listener text says, Ross, you mentioned that your wife enjoys C.J. Box's books. I, I do too, but I haven't read them all uh, or all of the Joe Pickett series, but my wife has. And this listener says, I would like to suggest a Fort Collins writer named James Work. He has a series of fun murder mysteries set in Estes Park in the 1920s. It's called the Ranger McIntyre series, and I emailed, I texted back. That sounds very cool. I'm definitely going to check it out. But I wanted to mention to you, if you like thrillers, if you like C.J. Box, and by the way, if you do like thrillers and you don't know C.J. Box, you should get to know C.J. Box's work. He, he does sort of uh, crime thrillers set in Wyoming, and the main character is a Wyoming game warden who, unlike many other thrillers, this guy is not a badass killing machine. Right, He's just sort of an ordinary dude who falls into these crazy situations and has to sort through them. And they're really fun books and really interesting and very different from other ones because you know when you're reading a book where the protagonist is a Wyoming game warden, that's C.J. Box. Whereas some of the other thrillers, and I love all these other thrillers, I love Brad Taylor and Brad Thor and Jack Carr and, and 
And, and Mark Graney, I'm going to have Mark Graney on next week. I'm 350 pages into the new Gray Man book today. I love all these things. But C.J. Bob, some of those other ones, you, you could be forgiven for maybe confusing one with the other because the main characters are sort of similar to each other. Badass killing machines, where C.J.'s books are different. So, uh, March 1st, C.J. is coming to the Lone Tree Event Center to do a talk and a book signing about his new book. And I'm going to be hosting it. I'll be up on stage with CJ asking him. He'll give a little talk. I'll ask him some of my own questions. And then we will take questions from the audience. They will be written down, brought up to me on index cards, and I will sort through them and find questions that I like. Anyway, if you would like to attend, uh, and the, the, there's two different ticket prices. The more expensive one comes with a book and a spot in the signing line. And then the less expensive one is for someone who's coming with someone else and the second person doesn't need their own book and a spot in the signing line. That's a cheaper ticket. Go to rosskaminsky.com and just click on that CJ Box event to sign up. And I really do hope to see you there. Ross, are your New Year's resolutions out the window? You sound like you are a king gorging on chocolate and wine at 10 a.m. No, no, if I were a king... There would be a scantily clad Playboy bunny gently feeding me the chocolates right here in the studio. So, no, I am not a king. Uh, and I should say, my New Year's resolutions were not to cut out any of that stuff. Um, I, you know, I, my New Year's resolutions had, had nothing to do with any of that. I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining my weight and all that because I want to, and I've already made that promise to myself, but cutting out alcohol is not part of it. I don't drink much anyway. And cutting out chocolate is not part of it. I don't eat a lot. Of, I, I eat chocolate every single day, but not a lot. Dragon is shaking his head at this. If I ate chocolate every single day, I would gorge myself as if I were that king, and I would be back to 350 plus pounds. Yeah. So like this piece of chocolate that's here right now from the chocolate therapist in Littleton is Probably the only piece of chocolate I'll eat all day because I will have had my piece of chocolate. So it's funny because I, I've told you, I've told listeners, I do not consider myself a very disciplined person, but I'm pretty good with that. All right, so we got. I want to do some things here and not just waste your time talking about whatever it is I was just talking about. There was a headline on Fox News this morning, downed Chinese spy flight linked to global surveillance program. And there are two key aspects of this story that I wanted to mention briefly. You probably heard them on the news, but what, well, I'll just quote, senior U.S. military and national security officials confirmed Wednesday that the Chinese spy balloon shot down over South Carolina's coastline over the weekend was tied to a major surveillance program run by China's military. The program had been largely run out of China's Hainan Island province off its southeast coastline in the South China Sea by the PLA. The PLA is the people the People's Liberation Army, and that really is their military in the sense that their Navy is the PLAN. It is the People's Liberation Army Navy. So the PLA is really, even though it says Army, it's kind of like their Department of Defense. And these balloons have been known to operate over Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, the Philippines, and India, the Washington Post reported first. So that's interesting information. The other part of this that I just wanted to mention, and this is, a, I, will, I will just say straight up front, this is a little bit of patting myself on the back. But 
we had Mike Morell on the show. Was it Monday or Tuesday? We had Mike Morell on the show who used to run CIA a couple of times as acting director. And I asked him, well, some folks have said we shouldn't worry about the balloon too much because their satellites can take pictures as well as a, a you know, a high altitude balloon can. And Morell said, no, 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 no. He's not taking pictures. This thing is scooping up communications and electronic signals intelligence. It's not taking pictures. And now, in, the, in all of these articles that are just coming out this morning, they are saying that. They are saying that this balloon was picking up communications, signals, electronic information, and just a little bit of kind of, I guess, sort of patting myself on the back, but also trying to remind you that hopefully I'm adding some real value to you when you listen to this show. If you listen to the show, you knew that about signals intelligence and the Chinese trying to capture communications, not taking pictures with this balloon two or three days before the rest of the country did. Because I had the guy who used to run CIA on the show and he explained it to us all. And the rest of America is learning it today um, or last night. And I think that's pretty cool. And I do take some pride in that. All right. I, I promised you, get your grubby complexes off my art. I really like this story. It's not long, so I'm going to share the whole thing with you. It's by, I'm probably going to pronounce this gentleman's name wrong, Ichu Diaz. First name is I-T-X-U. And he's a Spanish journalist and political satirist. And he writes in Spanish, and then other people translate the pieces into English. So this is translated. But this guy's view reflects a lot of how I think about things and is pretty funny. So let's talk about art for a minute. Since lately haters insult me a little less than usual, I'm about to sign an elitist and classist article. Is Ichu Diaz really elitist? Very much so. From the moment I wake up until lunchtime... I love this line. From the moment I wake up until lunchtime and then for the rest of the day, <laughs> I am disgustingly elitist. I am radically against anyone with the same brain perimeter as a dwarf flea undertaking intellectual and moral projects for which they are not qualified. Museums are not for everyone. Neither are universities. Neither is art, nor cinema, nor literature. Knowing how to read and write without making too many spelling mistakes is a commendable advance with respect to the illiterate, but it's not enough to venture to cancel passages of Don Quixote, even if you are a minority or belong to a leftist group or even managed to stumble into some political position out of the blue. Yesterday's art, the cultural baggage of Western civilization, is somewhat above average. What I mean to say is that an idiot cannot enjoy a work of art. A fool who contemplates a painting or reads a book from four centuries ago through contemporary lenses will be wrong about everything. But above all, they will be wrong in believing that this cultural heritage 
belongs to them. No. If that work of art had fallen into the hands of that fool, then in all likelihood it would not have been preserved intact in a museum to this day. So the first thing we must do to continue preserving the artistic heritage of the West is to ask idiots to stay away from it. Isn't this piece good? People attack sculptures or paintings because they believe they're capable of understanding them and talking about them without making fools of themselves, something they would never to do with Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas or with the works of, Mar of Martin Heidegger. Let me just interject here, by the way. Martin Heidegger, a philosopher, is so freaking dense that even though I have read and understood a fair bit of philosophy, I would not attempt to <laughs> opine on Martin Heidegger. He's just so out there. Anyway, somehow they leave these aside because they assume they're incapable of tacking something, of tackling something of the like without their brains bursting. And therein lies the flaw. No, those who have forced several museums to install panels explaining why ancient sculptures were so white and to include anti-racist slogans next to artworks are not qualified to contemplate the masterpieces of Greece and Rome. They are qualified to go on television programs to talk nonsense, to give talks to their cult followers, or to try to put a hashtag on Twitter, but they lack the minimal basic training, the intellectual decency, and the ability to absorb beauty that is needed to sit before a classical masterpiece and form a value judgment about it. Not long ago, an illustrious idiot from a high school in Massachusetts said that she was very proud to have eliminated the Odyssey from the curriculum because, according to her decayed criteria, it is racist and sexist. With the number of circuses in the world, when I see these things, I can't help but wonder why these people insist on not staying in their rightful place. Keep the clowns out of the classrooms. It's not a new example, but it confirms my thesis Someone who cancels a work by Homer because it doesn't fit into her tiny 2023 mindset is an idiot. And this is not an insult, but a definition. That's a great line. I'll read that again. Someone who cancels a work by Homer because it doesn't fit into her tiny 2023 mindset is an idiot. And this is not an insult, but a definition. In other words, her face could illustrate the term stupidity in an illustrated dictionary, and no one sensible would think twice about it. But in the event that you feel so empowered as to attack and cancel Homer, the least you can do is be on the same intellectual level. And no, having organized inclusive workshops where young ladies draw girls in pants and the lads draw and cut out boys in skirts is not, I'm sorry, on the intellectual level of the Odyssey. More like the level of a screaming TikToker for teenagers not yet too hooked on cocaine. And if, even then something were to suggest to you that you're intellectually strong enough to trash a museum with your disposable slogans fresh out of a futuristic New York Times editorial, at least do us a favor, don't take it out on the classics. There are plenty of modern art museums full of crap that I personally won't cry over if some abducted leftist decides to immolate his woke principles there. Be that as it may, 
Conservatives should give intransigence. Conservatives should give intransigence a damn chance in these cases when it comes to defending the cultural heritage of the West. In the past, people took up arms and gave their lives for much less. The idiots who try to turn our classical art museums into woke discotheques must be met with a single declaration. Get your self-conscious hands off my art. Because art does not belong to everyone. It belongs to those who defend it, save it, and preserve it. That's by Ichu Diaz in the American Spectator, spectator.org. Get your grubby complexes off my art. Indeed. This would be no effects. Who is it? No effects. Huh. Speaking of like covers, uh, when I was over, you didn't hear me say this earlier this morning. Yesterday, I I went over to visit with this company called Sparkos Labs. S P A R K O S Labs. And folks could look it up if you want to, because this is super super nerdy. He makes a really high-end headphone amplifier that I want, but I can't afford right now. Nerd! And he makes parts, op amps for nerds out there, op amps, regulators, other such things that people can buy to make their own audio equipment. Anyway, we were just nerding out listening to various headphones. I brought mine, my new headphones over. He had some fancy headphones. We we're listening to all this stuff on amplifiers that he built and designed. So cool. And one of the things he played, and this is a song I'm sure you well know, and I I think I did know but had forgotten about, and it's Alien Ant Farm's cover of Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson, which I think is Alien Ant Farm's maybe their only big hit or one of their few big hits, but I had forgotten about that song. And um, all right, why not? Yeah. <laughs> and... And it's funny because you and I, we were talking on the air yesterday about Michael Jackson. Yesterday? Day before? Yeah, yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday about Michael Jackson and the value of his estate. And we were talking about how he'd be, he was probably the most famous person in the world at the time. And I mentioned, I'm, I'm, I don't dislike Michael Jackson music. It's a little kind of poppy for me, a, sort of more of a rock guy. But if you were to ask me, you know, what's, you know, what are my favorite Michael Jackson songs? And I don't really know a lot of them, really. But this probably would have been top of the list. And then he played this for me yesterday. And when we were listening to headphones, it reminded me of... Turn it up for a second. That's cool. All right. People probably not tuning in to the Ross Kaminsky show to get tune spun for him, but what are you going to do? And anyway, if you want to see where I was nerding out yesterday, you go to sparkoslabs.com. I I don't think there's stuff there that many people listening to me are going to want to buy, but just to, you can see the kind of stuff that that I, I hung out with it, with him and his wife. They were dragging it. They worked together. I hung out with them for five hours, including going out to dinner. And we ended up going out to an early dinner at a nearby Asian restaurant. 
and it was just so much fun. That's what took you so long to re- respond to my picture that I sent you. Which was the picture? The TV that we both had. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that picture. Right. I was away from my phone. When's the last time I didn't do anything on my phone for five hours, basically? The only thing I did on my phone during that time was go to my pictures and show Sparko some of the stuff that I've built. You know, he was he was kind of impressed, you know, for someone who isn't a pro. He said, you did a really nice job. So I felt great about that. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, All right. Let's see. What else? What else did I want to say? Oh, gotten multiple texts from people asking about Facebook Live. So we do that some days, not every day. And it's on the days when we do it, it's not going to be all show. It's going to be from time to time. And. As things stand right now, the dude who really makes that happen is producer A-Rod. And producer A-Rod is out on a special assignment, as they like to say in the journalism world, on special assignment for KOA right now. So at, I don't know about later in the day, but at least during my show. No Facebook Live during my show today. But I'm very glad that you folks are in, enjoying it enough to be texting in. Asking for it. And asking for it. That's pretty fantastic. And you know what? The bottom line is this. All right, let's just put this plainly. I do a radio show that sometimes we do some of on Facebook Live. I don't do an online show that is sometimes on the air. All right? I'm a radio host. So... What we're hoping to do with this is add a little enjoyment and a little whatever and a little interaction and a little of that video component when we do the Facebook Live. But mostly, I'm hoping that you'll listen to me on the radio. Um, or you know, on, That could be on the stream, on your computer, on your Alexa, on your phone, whatever. And don't forget about the talkback function where if you open the iHeartRadio app on your phone, you click and, and go to KOA and you click on the little microphone, you can send in up to 30 seconds of sound about your, uh, yourself. And we will probably, well, possibly. Dragon is the filter, not me. We Dragon will decide what's worthy of going on the air. It's best if it relates to something that we're talking about at the time. But you never know. Something could be good enough. We might just... I've got pretty high standards. Yes, he does. Dragon is probably a, a tougher filter than I would be, actually, because I'm just happy to have a friend. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> iHeartRadio app, KOA, and then click on that little mic thingy. Uh, one other thing, if you... And, and this is more of a general thing. If you hear me share an article, most of the time you can go to rosskaminsky.com and go to today's blogcast and you will find the link for the article in there and then you can read it yourself. You know, if someone asked me what was the name of the guy who wrote it, you know, you can just go to my website and find all this stuff and you don't need to ask me. But if you do go to my website and you can't find it or something, feel free to text me at 56690 and I'll try to help out. So, you know, this person who texted in, what was the name of the guy who wrote that piece? I replied with a link to the article. But it's it would be best if you just went to the website. And another listener asked, is that linked on the blogcast somewhere? Yeah, it's in today's, in today's blogcast. So go check it out. Uh, what else? Oh, okay, this is a, I only have like two minutes here, but I think I can do this in two minutes. And this is more of a... A philosophical concept than a specific political point. But there was a piece that came out a few days ago, and I'm looking at UPI's website, big international news agency, UPI.com. 
The sentiment towards smoking has drastically changed, and a survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention indicates that most Americans are ready to end the sale of tobacco products. The survey published, I think it was a week ago Thursday, found that more than half of respondents support policies that would stop or phase out the sale of tobacco products. About 57.3% said they are in favor of banning the sale of all tobacco products. 62.3% were in favor of banning the sale of menthol cigarettes. 25%, about 25% of people who supported banning all tobacco products identified as tobacco users. And about a third of participants in, in favor of banning menthol cigarettes currently use tobacco. I will point out this has been a huge, the, the menthol part has been a huge part, debate within this conversation about banning stuff because menthol products are disproportionately used by African-Americans. And so when folks are going after those, on the one hand, the people who are doing it saying we're saving black lives and then black users of these products say, why are you picking on us? Right? Why can't we have our fun, even if it's bad for us? Can't we make that decision? The CDC said menthol products historically, this is what I was just saying, target certain populations with, quote, unquote, unjust marketing practices. Hmm. What else? The study said understanding population group differences in support for tobacco retail policies can inform public health education, surveillance, evaluation, and programs. Moreover, they can inform federal, state, and local efforts to prohibit all tobacco product sales, including menthol cigarettes, reduce tobacco use and tobacco-related disparities, and advance health equity. So what I want to just throw out there, and this is going to be a very kind of libertarian perspective to take, which I guess is what you expect from me. Is it, and if it is, should it be that it matters what the public thinks as far as this kind of policy banning something is the measure of whether a policy is a good one, whether the public supports it? And, and what I mean is I don't support smoking. I don't like smoking. I don't, I've never smoked. It's bad for your health. I'm glad I've never smoked anything. I would love it if nobody smoked anything. That would make me happy. Does that mean it should be banned? I don't think so. I'm a libertarian. But when I see articles that say most Americans support stopping, and then you could fill in the blank. At this, this story is about stopping the sale of tobacco products, but stopping Whatever you want to fill in the blank, I would just like to, to suggest to you that in a free country, perhaps the fact of most Americans supporting banning a particular thing, perhaps that should be irrelevant. Because as I said, we do at least theoretically live in a free country. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely not me. Were you? Sm did you ever smoke in the boys' room? Not in the boys' room. No, I did. I did try to smoke. We, we did a little trip to, to Germany mm -hmm. with with the class, and I, I tried it there because they had the vending machines there at that. Yeah, point everybody time. smoked yeah. over there back yeah. in the day. So everybody I, I tried that and didn't like it and didn't stick. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I remember being in France as a kid, and I remember everybody smoking. And I remember having a hard time keeping my mouth closed when I was down in southern France uh, on a beach 
as like a 16-year-old with all these topless 18 and 19-year-old French girls lying on the beach. That was a, uh, a, a wonderful and traumatic experience for me. Um, so I want to mention tomorrow. This, this is a thing that didn't, it seemed like the story was almost done when I booked this guest and now it has blown up into something big again. On the show tomorrow at about 10.05 Mountain Standard Time, I am going to have John Paul McIsaac. Does the name sound familiar? He's the guy who owns the computer store in Delaware where Hunter Biden abandoned his laptop. He is the guy who copied the data on the laptop and apparently gave it to Rudy Giuliani and also gave the laptop to the FBI. And he is in the center of all of this. And it is blowing up into a big story again. And he's going to be on the show tomorrow. So that's going to be really quite interesting. So let's do a couple minutes to go over some listener texts from earlier. And here was the question I asked. And feel free to send your own thoughts. I mentioned that yesterday I spent a bunch of time talking with a guy who designs audio electronics and that I wish I had that skill set. If there was one skill set that I wish I had, it would be to understand how to design a circuit and build more or less stereo equipment kind of, okay? And I asked you, what's a skill set that you wish you had? 56690, I want you to send me your answers. 56690, what's a skill set that you wish you had? Like, this is a kind of thing, designing circuits and, st and audio equipment is something I would like to do when I retire. And it will take years of study after I retire to be able to learn enough to be able to do it. And I don't know if I will ever get there, but that is a skill set I wish I had. Dragon, is there something that comes immediately to your mind? The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, is backing up into a parking space. I wish I had that skill set. My wife, phenomenal at it. She oh doesn't know gosh. how she acquired this skill, but uh -huh. she's got it. Me, on the other hand, I can't do it. Okay. That's a very low bar you just crossed, but all right. Glass blowing, blacksmithing, and furniture making. A whole bunch of people said woodworking or some version of woodworking. In fact, I've got one, two three, four in a row now, wood, woodworking. Photography. How about this one? I want to make a full Elizabethan time period costume with full detailing and authenticity of styling. That would be cool. And maybe you could get that into some kind of movie or, or Netflix special, uh, a period piece like that. And then maybe you can win some award for, for um, costume. That would be very cool. Skill set up. Uh, Commercial pilot flying a twin-engine private plane recreationally away from work. Ross, what kind of chocolate tea do you drink? I do have some chocolate tea at home. It is tea that has hints of uh, overtones of chocolate. I don't think, it doesn't have actual chocolate in it as far as I know, but it's a kind of tea that smells a little bit like chocolate and tastes a little bit like chocolate when you drink it. I don't recall where it's from, and I have to say, even though I love tea and I love chocolate, I do not love chocolate tea. I think they are better separately. Fine woodworking like an inlay table. Playing guitar by ear. Doing stand-up comedy. That's fantastic. Being a handyman. Playing drums in a band. Wine making. Would love to have the ability to make wine for gifts during Christmas and birthdays. My dad used to do that. I think he hasn't done it in a little while. Ross, I have four years, eight months, and 12 days until I retire, and I want to know everything. 
I want to have time to go down every single rabbit hole that I find interesting. One specifically would be the ability to captain my own boat on the ocean. That's cool. I'd like to know how to rebuild old Hammond tube organs. And then one that I shared with you earlier, but I'll share again right now. I wish I could operate one of those big cranes. Fear of heights sucks. And five texts later, I can teach that guy how to operate a tower crane. Love that. That is one of the beautiful things about this show. When we come back, you've probably heard about qualified immunity, but I bet you don't really know what it is and why we should get rid of it. Now, Ross Kaminsky. On KOA, 850 AM, 94.1 FM, and on iHeartRadio. Let's do this. I uh, I think I had promised you this yesterday. We're doing it today. It's a very important conversation about a topic that a lot of people have probably heard mentioned but might not really understand. And to the extent that folks think they understand what qualified immunity is, you've probably really only ever heard it talked about in one context, and that is regarding law enforcement. But qualified immunity is a much broader issue than that. And I am not an expert. So we're going to talk with someone who is. Jay Schweikert is a research fellow with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Cato Institute is C-A-T-O. C-A-T-O dot org is their website. I'm a longtime fan and occasional financial contributor as well to the Cato Institute. Jay, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you, too. Before we dig into the details of Tyree Nichols and how qualified immunity might uh, or does uh, apply in that case, could you define it for us? Absolutely. So qualified immunity is a defense that public officials can raise when they are sued for violating someone's constitutional rights. We have a federal civil rights law, which we usually call Section 1983, that says, you know, if, if any state agent violates your constitutional rights, you can bring a cause of action against them in federal court. But the Supreme Court invented this doctrine of qualified immunity that says, actually, it's not enough to show that your rights were violated. The plaintiff also has to show that the defendant violated clearly established law. And that phrase, clearly established law, is really the key to understanding qualified immunity. Because as a practical matter, what it means is that courts will not allow you to go forward with your civil rights claim unless you can show a prior judicial decision in that jurisdiction where someone else's rights were violated in similar factual circumstances. And so qualified immunity often means that the courts end up saying, yes, your rights were violated, but there's no prior case where someone else did the same thing that the defendants here did, so they get qualified immunity, case dismissed. And it means that it's incredibly difficult to vindicate violations of constitutional rights by, um, by government agents. Okay, so two things I want to follow up on. Is, is qualified immunity a defense in a civil case, a criminal case, or both? It only applies in civil cases. Um, it's a civil doctrine that applies to uh, civil rights suits for money damages um, brought under this particular federal civil rights law. It does not have any applicability in criminal cases. Okay, so for example, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but I'm just going to use this as an example. In the, in the Tyree Nichols case, uh, the, the police officers are charged with second-degree murder. 
There is no qualified immunity defense for that. But if there were going to be some other potential civil rights lawsuit for violating the constitutional rights of Tyree Nichols, uh, that could be barred by qualified immunity if there isn't a case that looks more or less identical. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Even if they were convicted of murder, right. that does not preclude them raising qualified immunity as a defense in any civil suit. Okay. So one other thing I want to ask you, because I, I think folks don't quite understand how insane this can get. And uh, you probably know these stories off the top of your head, so I hope I'm not asking you a surprise question here. Give us an example of a case that was dismissed based on qualified immunity when there was another previous precedent that a normal person would have thought, yeah, this should serve as precedent for that, and therefore the case should be allowed to go forward, but it didn't because of some small, ridiculous difference. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, we could spend the whole time giving examples of these cases, but I think one of the ones that, that's most illustrative is a case called um, Baxter versus Bracey. This is from just a few years ago, um, which involved um, police who would chase the suspect into an abandoned basement. And the suspect surrendered. He sat on the ground and he put his hands up. But the police nevertheless deployed their dog against him, and the guy suffered really serious injuries from dog bites like under his arm because he had his hands up. Uh, and he brought a civil rights suit um, claiming excessive force. And he actually had found a prior case in the Sixth Circuit where this was being litigated, where the court had held that it was a Fourth Amendment violation to deploy a dog against a suspect who had surrendered and was laying on the ground. Now, that sounds like exactly this fact pattern. But what the court held in that case was, well, in this prior case, the guy was laying on the ground. But here, Alexander um, Baxter was sitting on the ground with his hands up, and he points us to no case demonstrating that that set of fact patterns would, uh, the use of a dog in that set of fact patterns would constitute a Fourth Amendment violation. So those officers received qualified immunity and the case was dismissed. Unbelievable. Infuriating. Um, that's a, Absolutely I mean, that's a, infuriating. Well, a really aggressive example, but yeah. like, it is by no means an outlier. That's exactly the sort of minor factual quibble that prevents plaintiffs from going forward with meritorious civil rights suits. So in the case that you and I would have thought is a perfectly reasonable precedent there where it had been ruled previously that it was a violation of constitutional rights to sit sick your dog on someone who's lying down on the ground. Right. What, was that case decided before the Supreme Court invented qualified immunity? How do these precedents even come to exist? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. There is this um, catch-22 aspect of qualified immunity because when a court is faced with this question of, of qualified immunity, they, they actually have a choice about how to resolve it. They can either say, they can resolve the merits question first, right? They can say, okay, yes, your constitutional rights were violated, but this doesn't count as clearly established, so we're going to dismiss the case. And that's bad enough. But what courts actually can also do, and what they increasingly do uh, you know, in, in litigation today, is they can say, we're not even going to decide whether this was a constitutional violation. We're just going to say this wasn't clearly established, case dismissed. And what that means is that the law then does not become clearly established going forward. So the exact same fact pattern could occur. The same defendants could commit the exact same violation the very next day, and they would receive qualified immunity again, because the law has still not been clearly established. And that can go on 
indefinitely, um, in so, like as long as courts continue to refuse to decide the merits questions. And that happens a lot. We've seen that pattern of occur of continually refusing to decide um, constitutional questions, especially in the context of the right to record police in the course of their public duties. Mm-hmm. No federal court that has ever decided this has said that, or every court agrees that you do have a First Amendment right to record the police. But many, many, many courts have granted qualified immunity to police who violate that right um, without even recognizing that that right exists. So it's a very problematic pattern. Okay. One more sort of tangent before we get to Tyree Nichols. M- most of the conversation that we hear about qualified immunity does revolve around law enforcement. But I would like you to just help listeners understand why the issue goes far beyond law enforcement to things potentially like employees at a public university. Or you tell me, and you know, give an example or two of why we need to reform or eliminate qualified immunity, not just because of law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, you're right that this issue has come to public prominence because of high-profile cases involving the police, but it is by no means limited to the police. This is a defense that applies to anyone sued under, again, the federal civil rights law that we generally call Section 1983. And that lets you bring a civil rights suit against any government agent who violates your constitutional rights. And lots of different government agents can violate your constitutional rights. So this obviously occurs all the time in the context of corrections officers. There are some pretty egregious constitutional violations that occur in prisons. Again, we could do nothing but talk about some of those examples. Um, But it also, as you mentioned, um, this comes up in the context of um, schools, both um, grade schools and primary uh, and and secondary schools. Um, So there are lots of um, Section 1983 cases involving the free speech rights or the free exercise rights. So describe one of those cases. Give an example of a a university or a high school case. Yeah, so there was an example um, uh, involving the uh, Turning Point USA organization um, that brought, uh, where students were basically told that to, you know, it's a very conservative organization, where students were told that um, basically they weren't allowed to pass out pamphlets uh, on campus because they hadn't, you know, been like pre-registered with the school, in essence, enacting a prior restraint um, against this uh, against this student organization, um, you know, in part because the school disagreed with the very conservative speech that they were putting out. Um, and so they brought a um, Section 1983 claim uh, asking that, you know, saying that this violated their First Amendment rights, that, of course, on a you know, public campus, they can distribute literature about their, you know, political beliefs. That's like ground zero of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And the Eighth Circuit in that case held, yes, of course you have you know, a, a First Amendment right to do this. Like the First Amendment does not allow prior restraints on speech, especially political speech. But, you know, the law is kind of, you know, we don't, haven't had a case quite like this. And, you know, the law is kind of complicated here. So they granted qualified immunity um, to the school officials. Um, so it occurs in a wide variety of contexts. Um, it occurs, um, you know, in grade in, in great schools. A lot of times, school officials will be the ones that conduct unlawful searches against their students. Um, so yeah, it's a much broader issue than just um, policing. Even though the policing context is, I think, what has made this an issue of of national prominence. We're talking with Jay Schweikert, research fellow with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, Cato C A T O dot org. Um, 
By the way, Jay, I had an opportunity to ask Senator Tim Scott, who was a pretty big champion on the Republican side of various sorts of police reform. I had a chance to ask him a question about elimination of qualified immunity, and he made it very clear to me uh, that he had no interest in eliminating qualified immunity. So that was kind that of interesting. Did not surprise me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. So, and I'm you know I'm not a conservative. I'm a libertarian, and I'm a civil libertarian. And I don't like qualified immunity at all, not least because, as you noted before, but it's worth mentioning again, uh, this is not in law. This is this is never written into a law, correct? That's ab correct. This is absolutely a doctrine that the Supreme Court invented and grafted on to a federal statute that says nothing about any sort of immunity. Okay, so let's keep going now. You wrote a piece for the Cato blog, the killing of Tyree Nichols reaffirms the urgent need for police accountability. And then police accountability includes a lot of different things, but I want to just focus right now on qualified immunity. So why is the Tyree Nichols, why is the murder of Tyree Nichols apropos regarding qualified immunity? So I think what the, 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 the brutal killing of Tyree Nichols reflects is that we still have a culture of near-zero accountability in law enforcement, by which I mean police officers rarely face um, accountability for misconduct or violating people's civil rights. Now, of course, in this particular case, you know, these officers have been criminally charged, and, you know, we'll see what happens, what comes to that. I would expect, you know, many or all of them will be um, convicted. But the question about accountability is not just how do you ensure justice in sort of extreme high-profile police killings? It's how do you inculcate a culture of accountability where police don't commit these sorts, this sort of misconduct in the first place? Um, we, we, I've kind of started, I've started using this term, sort of the broken windows theory of policing, right, in the sense that if you permit sort of small, regular, everyday, you know, ordinary so-called, you know, constitutional violations like stopping people you know, without reasonable suspicion or making un conducting unlawful searches or making unlawful arrests. You, you develop this culture where officers don't expect to be held accountable. And that's what, in part, leads you to these sort of egregious killings, like in the case of Tyree Nichols or, of course, a couple of years ago in the case of George Floyd. And so while, you know, qualified immunities will not prevent the criminal prosecution of these officers, this doctrine, more than anything else, is what has undermined a culture of accountability in law enforcement, because it makes it so difficult to hold officers liable, even in civil cases, unless you happen to find a prior case with extremely similar facts as your own. Um, okay, so, so while it certainly, yeah, let me let me jump in. And are are you an attorney? I am an attorney. Yes. Okay, so I I'm not, but I fake it pretty well because I spend lots of time talking to people like you, and so for the moment now, I am going to play an attorney for, let's say, a policeman's union, right? That sure. kind of person. Uh, but Jay, if we get rid of qualified immunity, we're going to have all these people suing cops left and right. And here in Colorado, we have a new law that does allow cops to be sued and to be personally liable for certain things. And cops already take a lot of risk and cops already don't make a lot of money. And if we get rid of qualified immunity we're going to be putting a different sort of target on the backs of police officers, and we will not be able to get anybody to be a cop anymore. We've got to be able to protect cops from lawsuits. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's one of the most sort of common objections that you hear to eliminating qualified immunity. And, and unfortunately, I think what, and I think that that objection is often made in good faith, to be fair. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are correctly sympathetic to the extremely difficult and dangerous job that police officers have. But what this really reflects is a misunderstanding about what qualified immunity is and when it applies. So this concern with frivolous lawsuits is, 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 is actually completely a red herring because qualified immunity by definition only blocks meritorious lawsuits, right? Because, the, again, the doctrine applies in that space between, yes, your constitutional rights were violated, but there's not a, case, a prior case with sufficiently similar facts. That is the zone in which the doctrine works, which means that if you have a genuinely frivolous, a non-meritorious lawsuit being brought against a police officer, you don't need qualified immunity to dismiss that case. There are all the other kinds of tools of civil procedure that can filter out at early stages of litigation gen genuinely non-meritorious lawsuits. And this is borne out empirically. Um, Joanna Schwartz, who is really probably the leading empirical scholar of qualified immunity in the country, has done a very extensive analysis of like looking at a sample of different federal jurisdictions and saying, let's look at every single Section 1983 case brought against police officers over a course of several years and see when qualified immunity you know, kicked in. And what she found is that only an incredibly infinitesimally small proportion of cases, I believe 0.6% of cases, were dismissed on the basis of qualified immunity prior to discovery, right? And prior to the process of actually, you know, getting evidence, which is a lengthy, costly phase of litigation. So the doctrine does almost nothing to, you know, prevent so-called frivolous lawsuits from proceeding. It is other tools of civil procedure that do that. And then the second point I would make is that this concern about, you know, police may be sued because they you know, or feel like they can't do their jobs because they're going to be sued for making incorrect decisions, again, sort of misunderstands um, what protects police officers uh, in these sorts of lawsuits. So just as a matter of, again, you know, qualified immunity only kicks in if someone's rights have, in fact, been violated. Right. But the Supreme Court has been very clear that the Fourth Amendment itself is, is, is extremely deferential to on-the-spot police decision-making. In other words, it doesn't violate your Fourth Amendment rights just because police make, you know, the wrong call, you know, just because they use force that turns out to have been unnecessary or arrest you just even though you happen to be innocent. So long as they were acting reasonably based on what they knew at the time, they have not violated anyone's rights in the first place. And so, again, by definition, they don't need qualified immunity. So it's completely reasonable to want to protect officers making, you know, difficult on-the-spot decisions. But that protection comes from the Constitution. It doesn't come from qualified immunity. That only protects officers who have acted egregiously, objectively, unreasonably, but where the facts of their misconduct don't happen to match the facts of prior misconduct. All right, I have literally one minute left. Okay. Joe Biden made some noises. He didn't use the term qualified immunity, but he made some noises about police reform uh, during the State of the Union speech. And you seem to have some conservatives starting to get on board as well. They're not on board like you and I are on the libertarian wing of things. But do you think there's some momentum here nationally that we could see something done with qualified immunity? I think there is momentum. Um, I would expect um, a, a, a more states to enact state-level qualified immunity mm -hmm. reform, um, just as Colorado and New Mexico did in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Um, 
Realistically, I think it's going to be difficult to get, you know, comprehensive policing reform, including qualified immunity reform through Congress, given that there's a Republican House. I mean, realistically, I think that's a challenge. But I hope that there'll be continued discussion and, and most importantly, a reframing of this issue in a way that recognizes that it's actually doing a disservice to the law enforcement community itself. Because by depriving police officers of the trust and respect that they need to do their jobs safely and effectively, this is hurting police officers. Um, so my, my hope is that we, you know, with the temperature maybe a little bit lower than it was in the aftermath of George Floyd, um, we can have a more rational, evidence-based discussion around this issue. I would be a little bit, I would be surprised if, you know, in the, in the next few months we got, you know, QI reform through Congress, but I think it's, you know, we, we have momentum to set up the discussion for real reform at the federal level, even if that doesn't happen right away. Jay Schweikert's piece for the Cato Institute blog is called The Killing of Tyree Nichols Reaffirms the Urgent Need for Police Accountability. This is all linked on my blog today at rosskaminsky.com if you want to find the links. Jay, thanks for spending some time with us. That was a great conversation. Thanks very much. We'll be right back on KOA. Um, I, I, I want to respond to a listener text. I, I th- Every once in a while I get messages like this and they frustrate me a little bit. I'm just going to try to keep my cool and just respond. Just respond. Listener says, as tragic as it was, George Floyd's death was caused by George Floyd. Had he been compliant, he'd still be with us. Same with Michael Brown and likely Tyree Nichols, a lesson that is seldom learned. And I would like to say that that is, so it's almost certainly true of Michael Brown. Okay, so Michael Brown, right, remember Ferguson and the whole lie about hands up, don't shoot, which never happened. It was a complete made up lie. Michael Brown, it appears, and this is based on a federal investigation, not just, you know, conservative media or something. Michael Brown reached for a cop's gun after just having committed a crime, reached for a cop's gun and got killed. So Michael Brown took that risk and got the punishment that he more or less deserved for doing that, for trying to take a cop's gun. But the other guys, I mean, yeah, George Floyd, he was arrested on suspicion of passing a bad $20 or $50 bill or whatever it was. And I think he probably did that. I think he probably did pass that Bill, I, I don't know that we ever really got to that level of certainty of it, but I think he did. Uh, but his death was not caused by anything other than a cop kneeling on his neck for nine minutes while junior cops around him said, don't you think you should stop doing that? Uh, so the the idea, and I, I get this from a few people, and I guess these folks, may, it, maybe it makes people feel good about themselves when they act all tough on crime. Look how tough I am. Right, I, I think it's nonsense that it's passing a counterfeit bill, or even being a little rambunctious when if the police are trying to uh, arrest you or question you or whatever. N- none of that reaches the level of being a death penalty offense. 
And the idea that George Floyd's death was caused by George Floyd is nonsense. Maybe George Floyd was due some kind of punishment. Probably was. But in the range of potential punishments that were appropriate for George Floyd, death was not one of them. That was murder. And you should not be trying to defend it. And, and when you say likely Tyree Nichols, same thing. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how far up your lower orifice has your head gone to think that Tyree Nichols' death was caused by him? In, in fact, the police department in Memphis have said so far, based on the information, remember, Tyree Nichols was pulled over for what was originally called suspicion of reckless driving. The police in Memphis have said so far, they have no evidence that initially pulling him over was valid. So far, they have said the police who murdered Tyree Nichols Obviously not, obviously, not only should they not have murdered him, but that it appears they did not have even probable cause to pull him over for, quote-unquote, suspicion of reckless driving. So this is really important, actually. I'm going I'm to stick with this for a minute. And this, is a, this comes up from time to time on the show, and I think you can probably tell this is an issue that means a lot to me, even though I haven't had, you know, I've never been arrested or anything. But this matters to me a lot. A lot of these criminal justice issues that don't touch me directly personally are very important to me for whatever reason. I just think I'm a big believer in our civil liberties and I'm a big believer that our government has a few legitimate functions. Most of what our government does, especially the federal government, but state and local as well, much or like most at the federal level and, and much at least at state and local levels are things that governments shouldn't be doing at all. That's a separate question. Police power is a, is a legitimate and proper function of state and local governments. But you got to remember that the function of government, including of the police power, is to protect our rights. And even when taking down a bad guy, the bad guy has the right to not be killed unless he's doing something where cops have a legitimate reason to use deadly force. And they definitely did not with George Floyd, and obviously they didn't with Tyree Nichols. George Floyd, I, I don't know the guy. He had a rap sheet. He had done some things wrong in his life. It appeared that he had mostly kind of turned his life around, but, you know, he was probably passing a counterfeit bill. He wasn't necessarily a good guy. He wasn't a terrible guy either. He wasn't a rapist, arsonist, murderer, you know, drug kingpin, any of that. You know, low-level occasional criminal, maybe. Should he die for that? No. Tyree Nichols, as far as we can tell, had never been in trouble with the law. As far as everything we know so far, a super nice guy who worked at FedEx and is a father of a four-year-old boy. I think it's a boy. I mean, this is nuts. This listener says, I was under the impression that Tyree Nichols ran from, yeah, yeah, at some point he realized he was getting a beat down and he hadn't done anything. And he was like two or three blocks from his mom's house. So apparently he was trying to get away and get to his mom's house and he was calling for his mom when they murdered him. 
And they did murder him. They didn't just they didn't kill him. He was an innocent man. They just killed him. They just killed him. And those cops should go to prison forever. But I, what I want you to focus on is this key point. What, what is the purpose of our government? Keeping in mind that cops are part of the government. The purpose of our government is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of whatever state they're in and to protect and defend the rights of people. And people have a right to not be killed by agents of their government unless they have done something that is worthy of being killed. There was a guy who sent me a text. I've since blocked him because I'm sick of this dude. But there was a guy who sent me a text that said, once he tries to get away from the cops, the cops can do anything they want to with him. They can beat him. They can kill They can do anything. And that person's a moron. Like I said in a different context earlier in the show, reading that article about art when the author was talking about a teacher who was an idiot, and he said, she is an idiot, and that is not an insult, it's a definition. So don't be an, don't be an idiot. If George Floyd wasn't high and just sat in the back of the car, he would still be alive. Maybe, maybe not. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The cop did not need to keep his knee on George Floyd's neck until he died. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You don't have to think that George Floyd was a good guy. And by the way, it appears that Tyree Nichols was a good guy. You don't have to think that George Floyd was a good guy. You got to stop making excuses I mean, I feel like we live in this world where, look, I, I honor and respect good police officers, and that is almost all police officers. Same with the military, right? 99.99% of people in the military are people doing um, a hard job, a risky job, for probably less money than they could make if they were in the private sector, and I, and I honor and respect these people. But there is something about that line of work that causes... Americans to be reticent to criticize them when they do bad things. And when you are unwilling to criticize or punish members of certain organizations for doing bad things, then what happens is those organizations will be more likely to attract people who are willing to do bad things because they know they won't get punished and it makes all the good ones look bad. How do you think good cops feel about these guys who murdered Tyree Nichols or even George Floyd? It makes the whole profession look bad. Just remember, please, that the purpose of government is to protect our rights. It's the most important thing. It's what they're there for. And even bad guys have some rights, and Tyree Nichol wasn't even a bad guy. Anyway, this is something that really just gets me like emotionally. So maybe I react emotionally a little bit on, on the radio. But the reason I do is that police perform such an incredibly important function. And when I say police, I mean 
you know, state, local, sheriff, all of that, all law enforcement perform such an incredibly important function in our society. It is critical that not only they do a good job, but that we trust them to do a good job. We'll be right back. I'm the bad guy. Duh. We, we were talking yesterday about Michael Jackson as far as uh, that I maybe didn't love his music, but recognized his talent, you know? Billie Eilish is really talented. I, 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 A-Rod's looking at me. I really like Billie Eilish's music. Plus, her music has an insane amount of bass. If you ever listen to Billie Eilish's music on a good stereo, like the stereo at my house, what? A-Rod is just shaking his head like, Wow. Wow. All right, all right. Let, I'm not looking at the text line at the moment. I want you to text me at 56690. Here's all I need from you. Here's all I need from you. And I, I only want you to answer if you know some of Billie Eilish's music. And we're listening to some right now, and we'll listen to more in a second. All I want you to, so here's my question. Is Billie Eilish excellent or not excellent? You just send me yes or no at 56690. All right, let's listen to this for like uh, 11 seconds. I'm pretty glad that you're alone. See what I said about really good bass? Really good bass. Uh, I'm. What? What? How's it feel to be playing the only good Billie Eilish song? No, she's got a lot of good name songs. Name another. Well, I don't know the names. Exactly. I don't know. Come mean, on, man. It's not like I, I listen to Billie Eilish every day, but let's put it this way. As far as like pop music goes on, goes, she's one of the only ones where if it comes on the radio, I don't change a channel in music that I'd consider all like top 40. Okay. You know what you can put on her resume? What? Uh, the number one person to least be able to follow up on your first big hit because everything since that song has been terrible. Oh my gosh. That is so not true. Gosh, jealousy doesn't sit well what on you, this? A-Rod. What is this? I don't think I've heard this one before. I, don't, I haven't either, and this is actually not as bad as most of the other ones I've heard from her. It's okay. What's it called? Lost Cause. All right. Is that about A-Rod? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Billy Eilish. What were your two options? Excellent or... Or, or not excellent. Not excellent. <laughs> we know what your vote is. We know what your vote is. All right, people. I'm sorry. I'm just a bad guy. Text, I'll leave. Yeah, right. Good call. Text me at 56690 and and just yes or no. Yes or no. It, it's very simple. This text is a bit harsh. It goes a little further than yes or no, but okay. uh, Nickelback is more talented. Oh, my gosh. That's nuts. That is nuts. One person says, all our music sounds the same. Depressing. Don't get it. That's probably what A-Rod thinks. Another person says, she's an amazing talent. Backed by her brother, they are forced, a force to be recognized. I agree. Uh, Billy Idol is way better. All right. Um, Billy is awful. Yikes. Uh, oh, A-Rod, you're going to like this one. You're going to like this, this reaction to my liking Billy Eilish's music. You ready? Ross sits down to pee now. Ah. Uh. <laughs> That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Thank you for that. Whoever you are, I appreciate it. Let me do, I've got literally one minute here, and 
and, and it looks like it's about 50-50. Yes and no. About 50-50. And uh, Burt Bacharach died yesterday, and you're playing that. Uh, yeah. I'm not old enough for Burt Bacharach. Sorry. So, yeah. Or you can just keep the Billy playing while I do this other story. So it's not just federal government. It's not just Republicans. Here's a local government and Democrats doing this. Check this out. This is from 9news.com. Denver government to ban TikTok from city-owned devices. The city and county of Denver will soon prohibit its employees from downloading TikTok onto city-owned devices, citing cybersecurity concerns. And a spokesperson for the city, actually the city's chief data and information security officer, said they made the move after performing a risk assessment. She said the app can capture data like passwords or personally identifiable information, and the city has no way of guaranteeing the information won't be improperly kept on servers in China. Starting on Thursday, that's today, right? City employees will not be able to download TikTok from an app store onto city-owned devices. And if the app is on a device, it will be deleted. Very, very interesting. Here's my long-term prediction on this. TikTok is too good, too addictive, too much fun. Uh, we use it here a bit. And I think it's not going to go away. I think it will end up being forced to be sold to an American company and then it'll stick around and we will know that the stuff isn't being sent to the Chinese government. I think it's going to take a while, but I think that's what's going to happen. The fabulous Mandy Connell up next. Keep it here on KOA.